to another episode of HR Imperial 2.0. I'm Pete Tiliakis, and as always, I'm joined by the legendary Julie Fernandez. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Pete. Happy to be here. Yes, yes. And we have a guest this week. I'm so excited to introduce and welcome to the show. I can't wait for this conversation. Dee Coakley. Dee, welcome. Hello. Really great to meet both of you, Pete and Julie. Looking forward to the conversation. Same yes, here. Yes, yes. Dee is the founder and um, CEO of Boundless HQ, a global EOR that I very much um, follow, admire, and, and, and love the content that they put out and the approach that they've taken. But, but Dee, tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm, uh, and then maybe we can jump into a little bit of news. And I think you've been to a, a really interesting event recently, uh, and then we're going to get into a good conversation around EOR. Sure, sure. Sounds good. So, uh, yeah, my name's Dee. I'm based out of Dublin in Ireland, have lived in many different countries over the years, uh, spent some time in Boston, have lived in Reykjavik in Iceland, in Berlin, and then I was in London for many, many years, but back in my, my homeland of Ireland. Yes. I um, started work, well, I've worked with, with uh, tech startups, uh, B2B SaaS companies for the last 15 years or so. And started working in the EOR space about four years ago. I suffered all of the challenges of trying to figure out how to compliantly employ people in other countries, tearing my hair out, trying to find lawyers and accountants in countries where I had no networks, trying to get to grips with the employment laws there. And that was what led me to founding Boundless back in 2019. Yeah, very cool. Well, I'm happy to happy that you did. And um, yes, it's a great time to be in this in this space. And I think that, um, you know, we're going to get into it a little bit, but I'm a huge proponent, as, as most people know, of the EOR model. Uh, but I'm also the one that probably whips this market more than any uh, for some of its down, you know, downside. So uh, I'm excited to get into it with you. But um, so look, we got a little bit of news. It is quiet right now. Um, it's summer, right? Everyone is st- saving up their big wares for uh, their new wares, I guess you could call it for fall. But uh, so not a lot of not a lot of product news this week. But um, Julie, do you know uh, what Nevada baseball and on-demand pay have in common? <laughs> What's that, Pete? That nothing, was... nothing. Um, awesome. no. <laughs> but I bet <laughs> they... you have some news to share, <laughs> yes. don't you? <laughs> yes, they do now. And you can go to my LinkedIn and you can find more about this. But basically, Nevada enacted what is the first of its kind law for earn wage access providers as part of what they're calling uh, the NV uh, SB 290, which is the law. Uh, I guess, special something or other. Um, and it really basically was coupling the newsworthy sort of announcement that uh, Vegas is 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 trying to get money and funding, and they did, $380 million to bring a Major League Baseball stadium to, this, to the Strip, right? Which is really going to be cool. They're going to be bringing what sounds like to be uh, the Oakland A's potentially. So very exciting. But more importantly, that opened the door for this other law to be in there. And now uh, Earn Wage Access has its first of a kind um, law, uh, which is major, right? It's going to be very good for for the health and longevity of the on-demand pay solution. There is, with anything in this world, good and bad. Um, and I think it's great to see that more legislation is coming in and more regulation to help make this uh, be more viable for the future. It also is paving the way for more states to do so. In fact, I think, um, or I know, California and New Jersey, and I believe I heard Missouri, is also working and exploring uh, some of that as well. Um, it's going to go into effect on July 1, uh, 2024, which is next year, obviously. And basically, it's designed to really pre- create more regulatory security uh, for, for these emerging digital finance solutions. And so some of the notable things that now come along with this is, you know, offerings have to include at least one option of a free service. Um, there's no credit check for eligibility, which I believe I feel is huge for inclusion. 
making sure everyone can have access to this. Uh, zero late fees is now a requirement, no debt reporting or collection, and no sharing of fees or tips between the providers and the employers for earned wage usage. So very cool. I think it's great. I love that uh, the American Finance or FinTech Council leaned into this. The payroll org was involved in this. And of course, uh, Daily Pay and other firms like them got on board to help uh, bring this about. So I think this is really great stuff. So Pete, I'm assuming yeah. that, that 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 bill would apply to anyone paying folks in Nevada and not just Nevada companies that were trying to use e- earned wage access. Is I that- would have to think so. I think it also is for any firm that's trying to operate, you're right, and pay in, which would be yeah. paying in the state of Nevada. So yeah, I mean, I've only seen the surface level uh, details of this, but um, you know, certainly think it's a, it's a step in the right direction. There are right predatory lending sort of things, I think, that are still out there. Certainly, we see these payday loans that are just awful. Uh, you know, the place where you can go pawn your title and, and that sort of thing. Like, it's just so predatory. Uh, and people get into a loop of never getting out of that, where the earn wage access capability is much more futuristic, on demand, real time, controlled, and certainly employed, uh, or excuse me, deployed by your employer, which makes it much, much safer. So, I, yeah. I think this is a good thing. Sounds like an altruistic, altruistic um, rationale behind it, but let's hope it doesn't become, you know, leave law with fifty yeah. different flavors. Yeah, <laughs> D, you've, you've, uh, you're, you're obviously in Europe. You're obviously working in many countries. Actually, are you? What, what's your, what's your view on earned wage access in terms of how it's? I know it's been very. Uh, I think it's a very American thing in terms of the context of our economic and, and workplace situation, but also just some of the inflation challenges we've had. And now it's really getting. I think it's starting to take off more in Europe, but what, what do you think about it? What do you see? This is a hot topic here, yeah. but a hot topic amongst <clears throat> people that work in the payroll space. So the Global Payroll Association, the GPA, I go to a lot of their events in London and Dublin. And every time, I would say for the past 18 months or so, every time it comes up as a topic of conversation. And yes. every time there is a very heated debate it keeps it keeps conversation interesting. There are a lot of different views and perspectives on it here. Yes. Adoption rates are, are very low in mm. Europe, but growing mm. at a very fast pace. Yeah. Um, the US is definitely a, a, a leader. And some of that some of that's uh, you know around um employment and employment rights here. I think a lot of it's more cultural. Uh, financial services products. I think the US market tends to be earlier to to adopt them. And a lot of these models are developed in the US and then come to Europe later. I I suspect that throughout 2024, we'll see much more widespread adoption. And what's interesting to me is that initially when this was first being talked about, it was organisations with perhaps workers on lower incomes that were looking at this. But all of the data shows that there's a lot of demand and interest from workers with higher incomes. So it's now starting to become a little more more widespread, but still very early days in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Go ahead, Julie. I'm sorry. What I think is real interesting about that is, you know, with the pickup first coming from the United States and and also uh, some of those lower end workers that tend to have more frequent paychecks already. And once you get outside of the U.S., the vast majority of countries are paying monthly. So you would think that's even more compelling reason, right, to um, to have some uptake uptake on on this sort of a concept once it catches on. Yeah. yeah, a yeah. month can be a long time to wait for that next paycheck. 
Yeah. 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 You know, you, you mentioned the confusion. Um, I'm actually working very closely with Daily Pay, uh, one of the larger providers here in the U.S., and, and really, I would say, a pioneer of this. Uh, and we're working on a campaign together through their marketing team to really dispel a lot of the 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 barriers to companies that they, that they put up around the myths of this, right? With the misunderstandings around what this is and what this does. And one of the things that I always, I love to point out is, and I've, I've studied this, I've interviewed many buyers of this. Uh, I have, um, I, I've done a lot with this it, across multiple vendors. And one of the things that I find is on the one hand, it's incredibly negligible impact to payroll. It literally is almost negligible. Whereas the actual outcomes and the impacts and the ROI are incredibly talent focused, right? Retention goes up, engagement increases, people make more referrals. Um, employees are less stressed in theory, right? They're, 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 they're using this and solving problems. And the reality of it is, is that oftentimes what those, those ROIs end up becoming very talent focused, right? And that's not something most of these businesses expected. They were thinking it was going to be, you know, maybe a simple uh, a simple impact here or there, and maybe you know it was going to help payroll. But reality of it was, it's really impacting talent. But at the same time, it's giving payroll the lever to go and solve problems within um, their operations. Right, same day payments for let's say California. Right, if you have to terminate someone in California, you got to pay them all their pay right away that day before they walk out. That's kind of a pain to do. And I know firms that use on-demand pay for that purpose, or. There were times, uh, what, a few years ago, we had ice storms down in Texas, somewhat of an anomaly. People couldn't get checks down there. Shame on them for not having direct deposit. But the point is, uh, they were able to solve that problem there. So it's it's both an empathy, an empathetic lever for employees to solve problems without having to walk down the hall and make that dredging, uh, you know, death walk to go ask their boss for a, for a, 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 an advance or a loan. Um, and gives them the ability to, to to solve those things, but also gives the payroll manager some uh, autonomy to to solve issues as well in a very digital, modern way. So I think it's just something that you need to have, uh, and it's not it's not necessary for every every uh, population. But I think the populations that have those uh, more frontline sort of hourly workers do tend to adopt it more. But you're absolutely right, D. I heard you say something about uh, folks uh, up up sort of up salary. Higher, higher level salaries are also wanting to use it. I actually saw an executive talking about deploying it in his organization. And he actually said something that was really interesting. He said, you know, he goes, I would love to have my money sooner. He goes, net present value tells me it's right. It's, it's more, it's more valuable to me now than later. And I'd love to be able to make investments with my money much sooner in the 401k and other areas. So there is an attitude towards this that I think is still, uh, you know, putting it through an outdated lens that that says well we're we're going to lose control and then there's another lens that says well these are the these are the things employees are expecting and and look at the impact and the outcomes that can come from it so i'm really excited to see more firms using it and i i think this is just going to be something that comes standard in the payroll model um eventually all right i think i heard okay. uh, d you said you were at an event here recently I was. I was at a really interesting event in Stockholm last week in Sweden, and it's an organization called the Future Talent Council. They run an event each year called the Future Talent Summit. Small number of people, just about 200 people, but one third of the attendees are from the university sector. And these are people that are focused on innovation within their universities and particularly in working with industry to figure out what talents 
industry will need in the years to come, what skills that they'll need, and then mapping that to their their plans uh, for for um, how they'll be educating the students that come come through their doors. The second third of the attendees are policymakers, so people from government and setting policies around job creation. And the final third are from industry. So it was generally global heads of HR from large organizations with maybe tens of thousands of employees. So global heads of HR from companies like DHL, Volkswagen, uh, the global head of PeopleOps from Google was there. Really fascinating conversations. A lot of, I would say, concern from the university sector that the world is moving at such a fast pace and what employers want and need from their workforce is evolving at such a fast pace that they're really struggling to keep up. So everything that they've ever done around course design and, and mapping to what industry needs, they have to throw that all out and start again because in order for them to evolve what they're teaching and how they're teaching at the rate and pace of change when you look at AI, that's a real struggle for them. Yeah, that's a great, that's a, sounds like a great event. And I, I, it's very refreshing to have that many different perspectives coming together and actually having a conversation. And that's, that's where change starts, right? So very yeah, cool. It was people from all over the world. A lot of people from North America, quite a few uh, Canadian universities and policymakers yeah. involved. Um, people from the Middle East, Asia. It was very cool. Yeah. You know, I'm. it's so funny. The skeptic in me, you know, says, well, maybe the, it's the optimist and the skeptic. The optimist in me says, well, you know, there's plenty of room, as we've talked about talent before on this show and talent intelligence and skills. Um, there's plenty of room for, you know, entomology or taxonomy, you know, around that. That's that's somewhat unifying. I think it's quite lofty and aspirational, to be sure. Uh, but it reminds me uh, of a, a school board conversation that I had recently in my local organization where um, some educators came before the board and kind of schooled us on, you know, questioning their curriculum and saying, but, you know, this curriculum that we've selected is is skills-based learning. And I thought, yeah, wait till you get to the private sector and you see what, what happens with you know, skills-based skills learning. Um, you know, it's very much in development and there's a lot of conversations to, ha- to be had around that. So how cool that, that they're happening. Yes, yes, it is. And look, it's everybody's problem, right? I mean, I hate to call it a problem, but it is, right? We've got to, we've got to figure out all of these countries and all of our sectors and areas have to figure out how to better prepare our work, our, 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 our kids, right? That are coming out of school uh, and, and adults too uh, for the workforce. And it, and it is changing at an incredibly rapid pace and I'd, I'd love to see it uh, catch up. So very cool. Julie, what about you? You've been anywhere lately? You've been doing, what's, what you've been doing? Oh, you know, I've just been, I've been deeply involved in, uh, in a lot of hearty client work and, you know, it's all HR transformation. So there's technology components and there's operating model components. And I have to say, you know, a shift that I've seen in the market, uh, in the last year or so, in the last several months or so is I think companies that are going to the cloud that are bringing in new technologies are really starting to understand, or at least starting to listen um, and hear that the operating model is very much impacted by these transformational technologies. And, um, you know, there is merit and value and and real solid reasoning for uh, taking a, a, an operational 
transformation look and not just wedging in a technology that, you know, that will change all of the interactions and drive self-service and, and all these other tool-based things. So, so I'm excited. I, you know, met with some great teams in the last week. There's, there's uh, a lot of embracing, it seems to me going on. And, and um, you know, of course there's always resistance, but I think, I think folks get the message and they're generally hungry for transformation and excited about being a part of that, that mission going yeah. forward. So yeah, it's good um, stuff. Love being it's... deep in the client work. Cause it reminds me what this is all about. Yeah. And you have some big gnarly clients too. So I know you got your hands full. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yes. Wonderful gnarly clients. <laughs> I know. Good, good, good. Well, next time you're in Atlanta, let's get together. We need to hang out a little bit. So, For sure. um, okay. I'm so excited. This is what I want to get to, right? Everyone knows, uh, look, I'm a huge proponent of the global employer of record service. Um, we're going to explain what that is if you're not familiar, but fundamentally I call it uh, really a global platform, a, glo- a growth engine, right? That helps you compliantly step into uh, countries of operation where you may not already or, or may not want to have a business nexus. And I think the beautiful thing of it is, is it's both an agility enabler for the organization uh, that's leveraging it, helping them achieve their strategic goals, helping them access top talent wherever they are. But it's also a human, uh, a human opportunity enabler, right? Giving people opportunities that they might not otherwise um, have. And, and that's bringing economic um, support to people and, 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 and growth in their careers and their families. Um, so it's really fantastic. And, and I think that I've seen, I've studied this extensively. Um, I, have, uh, I wrote the first report on this in 2020, the first market analysis that has been copied now and, uh, and lives on. And what I've learned from that is there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad as well. And there's a lot of in between. And fundamentally right now, I think it's a very crowded, confusing and somewhat mis- misunderstood marketplace. Uh, and D, I wanted to start there. I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, what your point of view is and you know, how did you get into this business? We talked about it a little bit and why do you, uh, what, what, you know, what is your vision for, um, you know, the EOR model? Yeah, it, it certainly is a confusing space. And I think a lot of that is just a symptom of the fact that it's a relatively new space. Now, employers of record have existed probably since the 1970s, yes. but it's a space that has really only reached widespread awareness and kind of mass market awareness since 2020. Uh, and there have been, there's been a flood of new entrants into yes. the space since 2020. And that's really, really changed the space. Um, how did I get into it? So I spent 10 years in COO roles with B2B SaaS companies. And the last company that I was with, we had an internationally distributed team. It happened really organically. And it became my problem to figure out how to compliantly employ these people, how to handle their payroll, make sure we were on top of all of our obligations, both in terms of employment regulations, but also in terms of local taxation. And it was astonishingly difficult. Yeah. You know, I was scrabbling around trying to find lawyers and accountants in different countries where I might not have had a network. and. As someone who, it wasn't this, um, having people distributed internationally was not core to our business. As I say, it happened organically. And the, the, the workload, the expense and the time investment required to resolve these challenges really was disproportionate relative 
to the upside from our perspective. So that was when I started to look around. I, I, I kept thinking, well, I must not be doing this right because it's so difficult and so expensive and so slow. Surely I'm doing something wrong. And I started to talk to a lot of my people on my COO network. I had a big COO network in London and everyone I spoke to had the same problem. And no one was happy with the solutions they were using. This was around 2018. Yeah. So that, that was when I decided to uh, to give it a go of building a really high quality solution and trying to, to figure out if I could solve these problems. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's one you, way to jump in and be the, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to fix this myself. Exactly. That's right. so cool. Dude. Hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, but you, you said a word there that I think is incredibly important and very meaningful to this, to this solution. And that is time. And, and, and even if you have all of the money and you have all of the knowledge, the time it takes to do this can be the difference between you entering a market before your competitors or capitalizing on an opportunity before the other. And that's the agility that I think that this solution provides. And that's what I want. You know, I, I love to see people uh, taking a hold of and, and, and using as a catalyst to get them to what they're, what they're trying to get to. But, but you're right. There's a, there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. And it is complicated um, under the, under the curtain. Yeah. And it's, it's agility in terms of speed to the market. So if it's yes. your first time putting someone new in a market, but what we're seeing, and I think there's a real growing trend here because I've been seeing it trickling in over the last few months is more and more companies, larger corporates that historically had international entities and were very distributed in terms of where they had operations. They are now looking at their cost base and they're looking at how they reduce their spend, how they clean things up, reduce complexity. And in many cases, in countries where they don't need to have an entity in country or where they have smaller numbers of people, they are looking at closing down entities and bringing those people in under an employer of record. And I think that's yeah. really interesting and, and just symptomatic of the way the world is, the way the market is. And, and all companies are looking at how they can reduce costs, reduce complexity and really streamline what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. To, Go ahead, Julie. To me, the thing, the, to me, the thing that's, um, that's interesting there is something that we've seen happen in the global payroll market as well. So time, we just focused on time, but the expense to establish yourself as an EOR broadly is not unlike, you know, the growth challenges that we've seen in the in the global payroll market where uh, you really to have presence everywhere or to anticipate having presence exactly where your clients will need it is no small feat and yeah. uh, it's caused you know a number of folks in in some of these markets to have to turn to private equity investment and and to other things right just to be able to expand so that you have a footprint that matches the footprint of your potential clients, right? Or or to mediate their expectations until you do have growth and, and some sort of um, established presence in, in such a broad footprint of stuff. So it, it's a balancing act um, yeah. for sure. Agreed, agreed. You know, that's a great place to kind of maybe take a pause here for a second. I think one of the things that's become really confusing, and I blame the marketing in this industry, is the, the blurred lines between global payroll and global EOR. And I'm wondering, Dee, do you have a simple way of explaining the difference uh, in, in the way that you would explain it, right? I, I know how I would explain it, but what would you say when you tell someone what is the difference and, and what do you think about that, about these lines being blurred? Sure. So anytime a company wants to run payroll in a country, and remember, you have to run payroll 
where your people are. It's not about where the company is. So if you have a US company and that company has people that are based out of France, out of the UK, out of Australia, that US company then has to run payroll in a way that's compliant with those countries. So if that US company is set up to do that, they have established operations in those countries. They Maybe they have entities, they have tax registrations, they have accountants on the ground. Then they're looking for a global payroll solution. They want to run payroll for their own company in those other countries. But if a company doesn't have local operations, they don't have connections in those countries, they are not established, they don't have entities there, they don't have legal advice or accountants in those countries, payroll's a leap, right? That They have steps they're going to have to jump through before they get to payroll. And that's where an employer of record can step in. And an employer of record can act as an intermediary that handles all of that stuff on your behalf. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very agile. Right. I mean, it's very, it's very, uh, it's very fitting sort of fits where it needs to, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. And so like, and Julie, maybe this is something uh, I'd love to hear you, uh, your point of view as well. Is like, where do you think Global EOR like really fits in the HCM ecosystem and strategy? Because like, I think there's this connotation that this is only really for smaller companies. Like, first of all, the the, the label multinational corporation or company has become really un. It, it used to be the biggest companies were those. Right now, yeah. it, anyone can be that, and everyone is kind of becoming one for many, many reasons. But but when I first started to study this, it seemed like a very opportunistic point solution. And actually, what I'm finding is is larger companies are beginning to to go there as well. Um, or even some in some cases, I've even seen where they're establishing their own in-house, almost shared service kind of capability around this. The biggest, biggest companies. But one of the things I think I have noticed is it's also becoming more of, and I've actually interviewed companies who this is their talent model, but I've seen more and more companies using it as part of a talent, um, uh, total talent approach where they say, look, we want to be able to get the best people to work for us. And if that means we have to go somewhere where we don't play and get them, we're willing to do that. And I've again, I've met firms that said, that's the talent model we use. We want the best developers or whatever, and we hire them wherever they are and we use EOR to do that. But what do you, what do you ladies think? Like, where do you feel like this fits into H, the, the, the modern or the future, maybe even HCM strategy, right? We were talking about the operating model strategy earlier. Julia, what do you think about this? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. I have my own opinions, of course, but uh, I think initially there's confusion and and EOR is confused with what has been the very small parts of a large organization called uh, global mobility, right? Where you're dealing specifically with expats and impats and third country nationals and, and, and very unique populations. And probably because that was the model. Um, for uh, accessing talent, uh, absent, you know, broad or widespread availability of EOR. So then you look at, you know, okay, so that that was, but now we're talking a completely different, you know, completely different workforce, really, or workforce model. So you have a couple of things that the EORs are doing, one being kind of find and hire talent or recruiting type function, and the other being making sure that they're paid and administered compliantly from contracts to administration. And I would say from a um, where the organization, you know, most touches it, I see focusing more on the ongoing, you know, the, some of those ongoing touch points closer to payroll and workforce admin. So core, you know, core HR and core HR talent than I do on the recruiting side where it's event driven. Um, yeah. uh, but, but to be sure, there's a lot of confusion and I completely agree with the fact that 
A, large companies are tapping into this because it is an alternative workforce strategy yep. that yep. is um, agile. Know, that, that is agile and it yep. gives a lot of <laughs> possibilities. And downstream, we see folks that are kind of being pushed in. There's, there's smaller market, mid-market companies being pushed into finding and accessing talent in places in the world where they wouldn't have before. And this is an option for them. And so yeah. we, we see more down market activity here than I think, you know, you might see normally, um, it, you know, at this time of adoption. Yeah. Yeah. If you're what recruiting you in your home the- market to- solely, you're really at a disadvantage. Yeah. 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 D, do you see any differently or any other nuances to that? I, I totally agree with you. Pete said it earlier that we are now starting to see large corporates looking at employer of record. I, I think that wasn't the case maybe two years ago I think it's it's more recent I think I, we're probably going to talk about it in a minute there are a lot of questions about EOR a lot of concerns about quality and I think a lot of large enterprise leaders were nervous about EOR previously but they're starting to realize that the upside of this this agility the flexibility the speed and, and the the ability to turn it on and off. If if you register an entity, the point at which you decide you don't want to have that entity anymore, it usually takes about two years to reverse back from that. And over those two years, you'll be filing taxes and delivering returns and incurring all kinds of of um, costs and mess. Uh, so it's really attractive to a lot of large enterprise companies, as well as mid-market and small companies. That they're all using it for different reasons, but it's attractive to to everyone along that spectrum. Yeah, yeah and just sh- the notion of shifting some risk, compliance risk. Of course, you can't shift it all, um, you know. But shifting some more of the day to day in that space is is very attractive from a risk profile perspective. Yeah, and we see we see a lot of companies in regulated spaces looking to use employer of record as well, where they have people that perhaps are not working in regulated roles. So say, for example, financial services companies um, where they may have software engineers in a market where the company is is not currently operating. They don't want to establish an entity in that country because they they don't want to have to face regulation in that country when they don't need to, where they, they have people that are not in regulated roles in, in that region. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't explicitly called it out, but I think there is some, some there are some assumptions to be made around scale here, right? Um, that are similar to that of the global mobility space. You get to a certain, you know, you get to a certain scale after which you're quite a bit more likely to just have grown into needing an established presence that is different than you are. Yeah, yeah, very definitely. true. Yeah, so so look, do you you said something a little bit earlier? You used the word flood in terms of describing this market. Um, I would say that's that's true, but I would go as a little bit more descriptive and say flood like Katrina, uh, New Orleans the day after Katrina when the levees broke, right? Like literally, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I feel no, no, no. I hope and I love New Orleans. Beautiful place, beautiful place. They recovered very well. Uh, I love the people there. But but really, it's this market is so saturated with with a lot of quantity, but little quality, and I would argue very little differentiation. And I think one of the problems is one, it's incredibly easy to enter, and I want to talk about that. But two, I think the marketing in this in this in this uh, market has been awful. It's been so predicated and slanted around putting people on the beach, which I want to slap people when they do that. 
No CFO on the planet I've ever interviewed around this or CHRO has said to me, we're looking to staff an entire beach full of people. Um, you know, and, and that was our mission. That was our goal. That's not what they're doing. And the idea to me that you're out there, that, that these firms are out there marketing themselves almost as travel agents is ridiculous. It, their compliance and, you know, again, compliance enablers or agility enablers and be. compliance right. experts, they should be, and they're not positioning that way. And I think that along with the blurred lines between what global payroll is and isn't, and what global EOR is and isn't has made this incredibly confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, but why is it so easy or what are your thoughts on that in terms of the marketing first, but then why is it so easy to get into this? I've counted like 150 ish or so, and they literally pop up all the time. And I would yeah. argue I've studied this market better than anybody has. That's so true. It drives me insane. It, why is it, it so easy? Well, it certainly <laughs> drives me insane. So let's talk first about entering the market and then yeah. let's talk about how these companies are positioning themselves and what they yes. say. Entering the market Becoming a true employer of record, acting as the employer of record, that is not an easy or quick thing to do. It takes time. So the actual employer of record is a company that has an established entity in the country in question. That entity is registered with the local tax authorities. Quite often there is a requirement to have, in many countries, payroll must be paid through a traditional local bank account. So that entity needs to have a local bank account. In many markets, the employer of record, it's a regulated space. So the organization needs to hold a license. All of that stuff takes time. So now you're asking the question, well, hold on a second. If all of that stuff takes time and if it's really slow in some countries, why is it that these companies have just popped up? And that's because they're not really employers of record. They they have the label employer of record on their website, but they're effectively masquerading as employers of record. They are third parties selling other employer of record products. So the company you engage, you might find, and I say in inverted commas, employer of record, and you might do a search online, find a company that says they are an employer of record. You talk to them, you sign up to a commercial agreement with them. But when it comes to setting up your workers through this company, and when you go to sign an employment agreement, you look at that employment agreement, and there'll be some third party company mentioned there that you've never engaged with. You haven't done due diligence on them. Because a lot of these companies don't own their own infrastructure. I would describe them as sales agents. So the and when I say the vast majority, I only know of two ourselves and and one other that set about building all of our own infrastructure. All of the others that have entered this space in the last few years, what they did was from day one on their websites, they said they supported employment in usually they'll say 180 or 210 countries or something like that, which is never true because there aren't that many stable um, economies and countries in the world. Um, And they set up from day one saying that's what they were doing. And then as customers come along and request a country, they'll go and find someone at the back end to support that. So I describe them as sales agents. I spoke with a, a VC a little while ago who said, well, I describe them as lead gen agencies. They're really just driving business to these local, yeah. they're usually small local employers yeah. of record. 
Um, and we can talk a little bit about what that means for the, the customer and what that experience is like. But that is how so many of these companies have have popped up. A lot of them are fly by night. Uh, trying to make the economics of that business model work is extremely difficult. And a, a lot are really flailing now trying to figure out how they'll solve for that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's really interesting. You're right. And there, there is, it's funny that you say that about the sales agents. That's a great way to look at it. But um, so what about the marketing part of this? Do you, what's your point of view on, on how these are being? Yeah. So <laughs> do you agree? It, it's really difficult as, as a customer or yeah. a prospective customer, you look at all of these websites and they look really similar. I, I spoke with an analyst earlier today and he was saying, look, the problem is all of these companies claim that they're compliant and claim that they focus yep. on compliance. And we know that's not true because the, there are companies doing things that, that simply are not compliant, but they're not going to tell you that on their website. Yes. Um, and it, it's a real challenge as a, a customer. I, you know, the reality is you need to hop on a call and you need to ask some hard questions because simply going by what you see on a website, it, that's just not enough. Yeah. And these products are compliance products. As as a customer, you need to be really discerning about who you work with, because as Julie mentioned earlier, you're sharing risk with this company. This company needs to be crystal clear when they explain to you what your risk is in each territory and how that risk is shared between you and them. At that point, you're entering into a world of legal complexity and the lower quality companies, when you speak with their salespeople, they're, they're not, they're not, they're not qualified to hold a conversation like that. They yep. don't have access to the right information. Once you ask the hard questions, that becomes very apparent and evident, but you do need to hop on a call to get that far. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even the biggest, I can tell you firsthand, I, I work with them and advise many, the biggest global providers in the world are avoiding this because they see it as too risky. And you're absolutely right. There is a lot of risk in this and, you're, and, and who you partner with matters. Um, and, and I tell people all the time, this is a speed and agility enabler, but you need to go slow to go fast, slow down enough to make the good, do some good due diligence and make sure you're selecting a, 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 proper, uh, a proper model. But yeah. so, so Dee, one of the things that I find very refreshing about your brand is you guys, your, your Boundless seems to be very compliance as a brand experience. And I would say to a, to almost an aggressive level, right? You avoid certain countries that I know other firms are fundamentally doing incredibly well in, but because it's not entirely compliant, right? So talk to me a little bit about that. What, what is your, you know, what's your thought on that and your approach to how, how you guys do that? Cause I, I really think it's very refreshing. Yeah, I would agree with you. I would describe us as extremely aggressive about yes. this. Um, Myself and my co-founder, Emily, just talked about this just yesterday. We were talking mm -hmm. about our team and the values of our team. And it's really interesting. Integrity, honesty, these are things that are extremely important to myself and my co-founder, Emily. And I, I, I you know, that that's who we are, the, uh, that, that's our makeup and how we see the world. And that's the approach we've taken to building this company. I often say that the problem that we solve is fear. When I was a COO and oh. I was trying to solve these problems, I it, this was literally stuff that kept me awake at night. I used to lie in bed with my eyes open thinking, I don't know what I don't know about French employment law. I don't know that I've paid the right 
health insurances for my person in Germany, you know, that person that I, I've just taken on in Spain, we're currently paying them through our home country payroll because we don't have them set up over there just yet. So yeah. I know they're not contributing to the statutory health system. What happens if they get sick and they have to go to a hospital? It's, it's, it, this is important stuff. It's stuff that matters. And when I founded the company, we were founding a compliance company as far as I was concerned. As the customer, what I wanted and what I needed was full, robust compliance. We, you know, I always say to sales prospects when we talk with them, we operate with the assumption that you know absolutely nothing about the employment laws of this country. Yeah. You know absolutely nothing about the tax regime in this country. And our customers shouldn't need to understand any of that. And let's be frank, if you're coming from the US and you're going to go and you're going to employ people in Australia, in the UK, in Portugal, in France, in Ireland, unless you have a very large team of experts, your company is not going to get to grips with the employment laws of all of those countries because they vary so wildly and they are so complex compared to any of the US states. So you really need to work with experts that you trust and where you can have that, that relationship where you know that they have this in hand and they're taking care of it. So when I was building a product and a solution in this space, that's what I wanted to deliver. I, I wanted yeah. to be able to look people in the eye and tell them this is what we were giving them. And then I needed to be able to follow through on that because the risk is extremely high for us as an employer of record as well. Julie referred to shared risk and that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So, you know, where our needs are very much aligned with our customers' needs and we've built a product that reflects that. Um, many companies in the space have raised huge sums of money and where companies have raised hundreds of millions over a very short period of time, very early in their life as a company, they are then under, understandably, under enormous pressure to deliver growth at any cost. And they must optimize for customer acquisition and for revenue growth. And that's what they've done, believing that they could retrospectively fit this global infrastructure and retrospectively figure out the quality issues but of course, that to do these things retrospectively is an absolute nightmare. It is extremely difficult. And I would argue that quality needs to be something that's part of your founding DNA. Retrospectively fitting it, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe there are times where some companies can make it work, but it's, it's, it's hard. It's yeah. really hard and you're unlikely to succeed. Yeah, agree. Mm -hmm. Agree. Especially when you don't know what you don't know, right? Like you said. Yeah. Well, indeed, there's like there's an inherent catch twenty two in that, right? And that is if you're if you're if you're solving or motivated by fear, you know, of doing things wrong or relationships, that also drives certain procurement behaviors or sourcing behaviors, right? And it's so it's so challenging as an advisor to work with clients and have them um, have them identify folks that they feel are um, less risky because they're already in their ecosystem, let's say. Or, um, you know, they, they have a, a personal relationship that isn't tied directly to the types of compliance and services that you're specifically trying to de-risk, you know, and, and so, so, or, or even, uh, you know, you just come in and start a conversation with the client they have a laundry list of, you know, many, many folks and, and, and you're quite likely to find folks that aren't even in the market, right. Or aren't even in the, the region or the, or they're not in the ballpark at all. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> it can be terrifying, you know, when you, when you start, you know, 
and see where people are headed and what they're doing without a little bit of steerage, I feel like, you know, can, can just um, set someone on a, a far better path, understanding what are you buying and what are you de-risking? And now let's take a look again at your relationships and at the providers that should be in your, you know, in your, in your list of um, purviews. Yeah. So, so D, you wrote a great article that brought us together in this conversation, to be honest. Um, the, the, you called it the problem with employers of record, uh, which I love. I actually want to name the episode that, to be honest. Uh, and so you, you pointed out five key areas where there are these problematic uh, issues that come up with selecting or engaging an EOR. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. Like what motivated that and what, uh, what are your pointers around those five that you would sort of uh, point to? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, the motivation was really frustration. Frustration, right? It yeah. frustrates me. I, I'm the customer, you know? Okay, now I'm a, a CEO of an employer of record, but yeah. I, I was the customer for years. I know what it feels like and I know how important it is to get this stuff right. And I know what it feels like when you don't get it right. And we've been watching people walk into situations where there are glaring red flags left, right and centre. But I appreciate that if people don't have experience at establishing international entities or employing people across multiple countries, they don't always know what to look for. So, yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, we just got frustrated and we decided, we're, you know, we're not going to stay quiet about this anymore. There, there are people that are doing stuff that is straight up non-compliant. There are people that are breaking the law um, and it, that's not okay. And quite often it's the employee that suffers. We hear of, of I'll, I'll talk through the quality issues that we see in a moment, but, you know, we hear of employees ending up in really tricky situations because they're not on the right employment agreements. They're not being given their, their right entitlements. So you mentioned five common problems that we see. So the first up is poorly written employment agreements. We've heard of employers of record where across the board for every country, they're issuing, issuing pretty much the same employment agreement. Uh, anyone that's worked in more than a few countries in an HR role will tell you that there is absolutely no way that's compliant because pretty much every country has its own regulations around certain things that must be included in an, an employment agreement and certain things that cannot be included. And different countries' regulations and laws conflict with each other. So these employment agreements have to be produced on a country by country basis. Now, you would hope for some consistency across them in terms of style, certainly in terms of standard and quality, but they they, they cannot be completely consistent. Um, and we see stuff, you know, we, we've seen copy and paste jobs where we can see that clauses have been copied and pasted from a French employment agreement into a German employment agreement or oh my. You know, we'll see other countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, or, you know, inclusion of clauses that are not supposed to be included in employment agreements in certain countries um, or just poor, poor quality, you know, employment agreements that a high quality lawyer in a country would look at and say, that's not something we would produce. Um, so that's the first one. Second one is poor customer support. We've heard and we've heard this a number of times from 
companies that have moved to people to us from other employers of record where they submit support tickets and you just don't get a response for four or five days, where there are payroll inaccuracies or employees are paid the wrong amounts. And then it takes two, three months to resolve those issues. The kind of stuff that just as an HR leader or a global payroll leader makes your life really difficult, but it also means really poor experience for employees, which can then have all kinds of implications for retention. The third one is around the product. And a lot lot of the companies that have raised big money in this space in the last few years, they're really tech forward. And I think that is awesome. I I think that's the direction this this sector needed to move in. And for me, I was a customer of some of what I would call the the old school legacy employers of record, the ones that were solely focused on service and were very low tech. And for me, I wanted a a more tech forward solution. And that was one of the reasons I founded a company in the space. Um, So that's all good. But some of the companies that have started in this space in the last few years, the founders probably come from a place where they felt that technology could solve all problems and that automation was the solution to all problems. But what you're talking about here is a compliance product with people at the heart of it. So you cannot automate a solution to every problem or automate an answer to every question. And automation, you know, if you don't have compliance, if the the legal fundamentals are not compliant, tech and automation doesn't solve that problem. So it's it's having a balance between those things. But compliance is a must-have, right? And I always say, you know, that's table stakes. Yes, yes. You don't, that doesn't get to be optional. And then you can build the automation on top of that. Um, Next up, payroll errors. And I'm sure most of your listeners working in this space, I don't don't need to spend any time on that. Anyone who's... (laughs) And to try and rectify payroll. Or early. anyone with a paycheck. Right? <laughs> anyone that's ever been paid. That, yes. Yeah, that's never okay. And yes. then um, problematic operating models is, is the final one. What I mean by that is employer of record is a regulated space in some countries. It is not regulated in others. How employment laws are structured in different countries dictates how an employer of records can operate in a country. So our standard operating model is to have an employment agreement that's a tripartite co-employment agreement where we share the risk with the customer. And we're responsible for, so the employer of record is responsible for um, handling compliance, um, acting as the legal employer, processing payroll, filing taxes and handling benefits. The customer is responsible for owning the relationship with the worker, allocating work and managing performance. That's standard. However, and there are so many howevers in this. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's never straightforward. In France, for example, there is a uniquely French model called Portage Salarial. There is no English translation for this. No other country has anything like this. Portage Salarial is something between an independent contractor and a full employee. The individual gets full employment rights, but the Mm. company that they're working for, it's actually quite easy to terminate this agreement. It is not easy to terminate a full direct employee in France. Um, So that's one unique operating model. And there's very specific type of paperwork and a very specific way you run payroll in, in France. In Germany, 
employers of record must operate under an AUG license and the maximum period of employment must be 18 months. So again, very specific. But say in the UK or Ireland, it's not a regulated space. So we can operate our standard um, model of tripartite co-employment. There are other territories where we must be registered as a temp agency, for example, which is quite a different model to to, uh, the co-employment model. All of this must be done in line with the local laws. We would love to operate tripartite co-employment in every country. That would be awesome for us. That's what we want to do. (laughs) But there are many countries where tripartite agreements are not recognized in law. So it's not worth the paper it's written on. You just cannot use that model for an employment agreement. But yeah, we see see employers of record that have probably not, either not done the research that's required to really understand all of this, or they've optimized for speed and they're planning on switching to a a, um, compliant model further down the line. And sometimes that never happens because they're they're not not in a position to do that. So yeah, a a lot of, um, a lot of questionable stuff going on there. Yeah. Very hairy. Let let me ask you this. I want to, I I debate this a lot. I've debated it with founders. I've debated it with uh, lots of people in the industry, the the direct versus the indirect model, right? There are some that say the aggregator model is the best, right? It's more agile. It's this, it's that. I actually lean towards the direct side. I believe the more you can control the value chain, the better the experience. And my research shows it tends to prove that in payroll, in, in, in any service line, if you are in more control of that value chain, meaning you have control of the technology, the, the resources, the entities, all those sorts of things, you're going to eventually provide a much better quality service. And I see that in the vendors who are commonly complaining about problems, it, it does tend to be contracts, to be honest with you, the biggest complaint. But a lot of times it's the shoppy service, right? Say, especially in payroll too. So what is your, what's your thought? What, how do you see the direct indirect? Do, do, you, uh, do you lean one way or the other? Yeah. I mean, you know, I feel very strongly about this. I might not surprise you. I mean, you know, I, 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 I am not unbiased in answering this question. However, I simply do not understand how a company can look a customer in the eye, a company that is an aggregator, and how they can give assurances around quality. I mean, we all, we've all at some stage or another purchased a flight ticket from an aggregator, and yep. then your flight is cancelled or there's some kind of problem, and you're stuck at the airport, and the airline is saying, well, you didn't buy your ticket from us, and you can't get hold of the aggregator because there's a two-hour wait on their phone line, or they, they simply don't have a phone line. Um Anything that involves aggregation, the organization that you buy from and that you have a relationship with, they do not control the experience. They don't control the service that you're receiving. And while they may have the very best of intentions and they may offer great front end support themselves, everything has to go through a chain for them to get answers for you, which which causes time delays. And then when there is a problem, they often cannot affect change. They can do their best. They can beg and plead, um, but but they can't, st- you know, if, if you're dealing with an aggregator and you have an issue with the tax office in France and the, the taxes that have been submitted there, the aggregator you're dealing with has no relationship with the, the French tax authority. They don't have a French tax number, they cannot phone the French tax authority and speak to them on your behalf. 
you want to talk to the person that's going to pick up the phone to the, the French tax authority. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think there's a very different experience that I see. And I, and I think it's something you have to consider in, in, in your in your selection process. So look, last uh, last thing here before we kind of wrap up, I know we, I, I again, I always say this, but we could keep keep talking about this. But, uh, you know, key pointers or tips, Julie, D, either of you, I, I know you're, you're out there helping uh, companies, both of you every day. Um, any tips for avoiding or sort of detecting, you know, these potential problems or red flags, as maybe we could call them, uh, as you're going and making these selections process and how to think about this? Any, any tips that you'd provide? Uh, so I'm sure I'm sure Julie may have some thoughts on this. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, okay, so let me start. I think um, oftentimes when we are engaging with clients about employer of record or it comes up as a part of, uh, let's say, a global payroll conversation, right? And you're thinking about strategies and the possibility of using different levers for agility. Uh, one of the things that I think is just um, incredibly interesting, besides comments I've already made about, you know, maybe engaging a guide or getting getting some foundational, uh, inf- you know, bearings before you start making lists of, of providers, I, I, I'm intrigued, Dee, and I loved seeing some color in your in your blog article about limitations and uh, in the operating models. So, you know, I'm an employer and I'm starting to think about the levers and how I can leverage EOR instead of having my own payroll and my own employees. And just the simple fact that some countries limit the number of months or the duration of time in which you could have somebody in this model is so important to that strategy and that um, that conversation. And it, it may not even ever surface, right? Um, and, and talking to folks that, that understand really not only what some of those unique limitations are, you mentioned some other ones, um, uh, but then factor that into their operating models and their strategy, their overall strategy, um, it, it, you know, it just feels like a misstep so often. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why it's really important that your employer of record is a partner that works with you to educate you on these things, but will also work with you as you're defining your strategy and setting your mid and long range range plans. You want an EOR that can contribute to that on your behalf. Yep, absolutely. Look, this has been a fantastic conversation. Any final thoughts, anything we need to add? I think we've hit on just about everything. Um, you know, Pete, you're definitely yeah. post the link right to, um, to Dee's article because I, I will. just, your style and the way that you approached that Dee was just a great read. And yeah, I really encourage folks to, to read it. It's, it's um, taking the approach of calling out some of the challenges of the, the EOR model and, and folks in the space was so refreshing. It was really wonderful to read. Thank yeah. you so much, Julie. That's good to hear. I hope it's helpful. Yes, it is. You guys do great content and, and keep doing the work you're doing. Keep uh, keep it up. We appreciate it. So look, uh, just to wrap up, we always ask, uh, where can people connect with you, Dee, and where can we find you next? So you'll find me on Twitter at Dee Coakley. That's D-E-E-C-O-A-K-L-E-Y. And it's the same name on LinkedIn. I don't think there are too many of me out there. I'll, I'll probably be, be the first one that shows up. Um, um, what am I up to next? I'm really happy to say that after May and, and June have felt like 
really busy periods for conferences and events. Uh, quite nice that summer is a bit of downtime there in terms of travel. But we've already started planning. We're now looking towards conference season in September, October. And we're already just this week, we started looking at our plans for Unleash in Paris in October. So, so yeah, it, it, that'll be the, the next uh, busy event period. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'll make sure everyone gets your links in the description here to your blog, to your uh, Twitter, to your LinkedIn. Julie, where are you? Uh, where are you at next? What, what's going on with you? Yeah. So, you know, the summer months you've mentioned are oftentimes a little bit lighter from the provider uh, and producer perspective. They're all gearing up for the fall uh, with new products and, and, and different sorts of offerings to talk to clients about. But that also means it's particularly busy from a client perspective. So I remain, you know, very deeply involved with a lot of client transformations. That's where my heart is. I'm super happy to be doing that. I think I'll end up in Chicago here uh, in the second week of July, um, for some very mixed reasons and, uh, and just also looking forward then to some of the fall conferences and helping, uh, helping connect some of these providers and product offerings with clients and potential clients is something that always gets us motivated and energized in the fall. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. My fall schedule is already looking gnarly and I am going to go uh, pedal to the metal during the summer and be putting out a lot of work. So you can, you can look for that. You know where to find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, and I'd love for everyone to come and join me next week. I'm doing another Mythbusters um, panel discussion this time with uh, some executives from Aramark and Hilton. Uh, Daily Pay is sponsoring that on, uh, with the payroll org. And it is going to be fun. It is a very fact, fic- fact or fiction sort of um, uh, event where we, it's, we have a lot of fun. We, we did this at, uh, the payroll Congress in Denver and it had, we were packed, had great reception. Uh, and we've, we've made some little tweaks and we've added some new people and we are running it back, uh, with the payroll org. If you're not a payroll org member and you want to attend next Wednesday, June 28th at 1 PM, uh, get in touch, go to my LinkedIn. You'll see, I've provided a code where you can uh, have access to that and daily pay. Uh, thank you to daily pay for, for sponsoring that and creating that. And um, yeah, look for, look for me everywhere. You'll see lots of little content going on um, here and there uh, on my channels. And of course, we'll be here at HR and Payroll 2.0, bringing you more uh, great guests like Dee and uh, more topics um, that, that are important in, uh, in the world of HR and Payroll 2.0. So thank you, ladies, both for coming on. Dee, thank you so much. This is so amazing. Appreciate having you. Thank you. All right. Take care, Julie. Thanks. See you soon. Bye, guys. Bye.